Paul is bound and determined to go up to Jerusalem. We talked about that on Sunday. According to Luke's documentation here in the book of Acts, we are now at the end of Paul's missionary journeys. In fact, they are all behind him. Three of them that are described, that are talked about, taught in the book of Acts, are all behind him. It's approximately 60 A.D. as we find ourselves in Acts chapter 21. Think about that. 60 A.D. That means just 27 years earlier Jesus was crucified. It means that 27 years earlier He resurrected, He ascended back to heaven, but before He went, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, Go and make disciples of all the nations. And now here in Acts chapter 21, 27 years later, we see that His people, by the power of His Spirit, have made a substantial headway into the world. It truly is remarkable in such a short amount of time. In fact, Paul already had written a letter to the church at Colossae by this time, where he said in Colossians 1 verse 5, The word of truth, the gospel has come to you just as in all the world. The message of the gospel was already a worldwide phenomenon, already known throughout Europe, throughout Asia, throughout, obviously, the Middle East. 27 years. That's absolutely remarkable. Now, I don't even know if we have another 27 years on this planet. But I had to think today, if we did, how far would we take the gospel? How far could we advance the cause of the kingdom? You might look around and say, well, there's not that many of us. There's only, you know, a number here. What could we do? Well... I would say no less than the original 120 disciples who were there waiting for the day of Pentecost. And then, of course, Paul comes on board and Barnabas and so many others. But in 27 years, to go as far as they have is remarkable. Paul was bound and determined, are we? Are we bound and determined? Not only to be in heaven ourselves, but to take as many people with us as possible. We're going to pick up right in verse 15. Remember right prior to that, Agabus came down, the prophet from Judea, and prophesied that he took Paul's belt and wrapped up his hands and feet, his own hands and feet, and says the owner of this belt is going to be bound in the same way if he goes to Jerusalem, when he comes to Jerusalem. I think if I was Paul, I probably would have gone, that's Timothy's belt. (laughs) But Paul now is bound to determine, verse 15, after these days we got ready, Luke is writing, And started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, uh, taking us to Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. I like that. Manasin. It's the only time we hear about him in the Scriptures. We have not met him before. All we know is what Luke tells us. He is a disciple of long standing. The idea is faithfulness. This is one of the early disciples. I mean, to be a disciple of long standing and the church to be 27 years old, how long can this guy have been standing? right? But he was there probably at the beginning, early on, an early convert to Christianity, to the Lord Jesus. And now he opens up his home to Paul. And what's interesting to me is how the King James translates this. It says, an old disciple. 
Disciple of long standing or an old, old disciple? Which is it? Well, the, the Greek word is archaios. It's where we get our word archaic. You could say he was an archaic disciple. He was an old man. A long time now follower such that it was of Jesus. And I was reading that and thinking about this old disciple, Manasson. And how in the spring of 84, as a young Bible major in college, I got to attend a series of lectures, an annual lectureship. And there was a preacher's luncheon that was only for pastors. And I was allowed to go to that because I was a Bible major. And so I went to this luncheon and we all sat down and the room was just filled with all these preachers of all ages. The MC stood up and he began to, first he had everybody stand up who had been in ministry at least 10 years or more. So a whole bunch of people stood up in the room and all of us students were still sitting there. But then he began to whittle down the field. He said, okay, who has been in ministry over 25 years? And a bunch of people sat down. Over 30 years, over 40 years, over 50 years, and and fewer and fewer people were left standing until one man was standing in the whole room who had been preaching for 75 years. And that's what we all did. We whistled and we we applauded and, and he got a standing ovation. That was a disciple of long standing, literally. And that so impressed me as a young man. I remember that. And I remember thinking, Lord, if you would give me that many years, I would love to be standing for you in 75 years. The Bible tells us in Psalm 71, 18. You've seen your saints make note of this. Psalm 71 is the psalm of the old man. Psalm of the old woman. It's a psalm of a long-term follower of the Lord. David probably wrote it in his latter years, in his older life. But in it he said, Even when I'm old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. I love that. An old man who's saying, Don't forsake me, Lord, stay with me, all the way up until I declare to this generation. I may have declared the word of the Lord to the previous generation or the one prior to that. But I am called upon, if I am still drawing breath, to declare the name of the Lord to this generation. That's what a disciple of long standing does. He doesn't quit. She doesn't stop. Being a DLS, disciple of long standing, doesn't make you archaic. It makes you faithful. Now, I asked John to lead worship tonight. I've been having some wrist pain, and I went to the doctor to deal with this, to talk about this, and kind of have an MRI and just have this thing looked at, figure out what's what's going on. But I'm sitting there with Cheryl in the office, and I'm filling out medical forms, and there's a whole list of all these possible ailments or issues or things you might be dealing with, and you have have to check all those things off. Alzheimer's was on the list. (laughs) I looked at Cheryl, and I said, how in the world would I know if I had Alzheimer's? If you have it, you know, it's the wonderful thing about Alzheimer's is you meet new people every day. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. 
Regardless of what's going on physically, spiritually, I am growing, I'm being renewed. His mercies are new every morning. I desire to be a disciple of long standing. Emanation was. Now it's thought that this old faithful saint had a house there in Jerusalem, which he then opened up to receive the Apostle Paul. Why not James? Why didn't James open his house to Paul? Or one of the apostles there in Jerusalem. Now, it's likely none of the apostles were in Jerusalem at this time because they were apostles, which means sent ones. So they're probably all out in the field. So we'll give them a break. But what about one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem? This is Paul, gang. This is the missionary par excellence coming into Jerusalem to share all that he had been accomplishing, all the Lord had been doing through him over the past several years. He comes up to Jerusalem. Wouldn't you think he'd have first class treatment? Wouldn't you think that at least one of the leaders of the church would say, Hey, Paul, come stay with me. But no, Manasseh, he's the one who ends up opening his home. Why not one of these other guys? Well, Paul was always kind of an outsider there in the Jerusalem church. He was a rogue. Kind of a troublemaker. They didn't know what to do with him. You know, first he's persecuting the church. Then he gets saved on the Damascus Road and they're like, is he really saved or not? Then he starts going out on all these journeys and Gentiles are getting saved. What do you do with Paul? So the welcome is, well, they welcome him, but I have a feeling that there was a little bit of tension that accompanied Paul's arrival. Watch this, verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Well, that's good. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. I've been to one of those meetings. You see, after he had greeted them, verse 19, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Now, hold it right there. They began glorifying God. Note that. They began glorifying God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? And they are all zealous for the law. What's taking place here? He's talking about the Gentiles. They start praising God and then they stop. And they start talking about all the saved Jews. And then, and they have been told, verse 21, about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. And we just turned an uncomfortable corner. Hey, praise the Lord. So glad to hear that all the Gentiles are coming to faith. But, but we got a lot of Jewish believers here in Jerusalem. And they're a bit concerned, Paul, because we're hearing that you are doing things. It says they began glorifying God. You might note note that the word began is in italics. The reason it's in italics is because the word glorifying is in the imperfect tense. They add the word began to give you a sense of the imperfect. The imperfect tense is a past tense. They glorified God, but then they stopped, is really what it means. They were glorifying God until they start to bring up this issue. We got a problem, Paul. Again, it's great about the Gentiles and all, but what about the Jews? Now, if I was Paul, and what I know about Paul is there were few people who loved the people of Israel, his brothers and sisters, more than Paul did. 
So it may have been kind of a stick to the heart. What about the Jews, Paul? Paul who wanted to go to the Jews in the first place. And you'll see that in just a minute here. Paul wanted to be the apostle to the nation of Israel. His heart poured out for the nation of Israel. His own people. But God said, no, go to the Gentiles. So he goes. They're getting saved right and left. Paul is getting downloaded the truth of salvation by faith in God's grace. And he's teaching that everywhere he goes. And then he comes into Jerusalem and he gets called on the carpet for doing what the Lord has called him to do. This is why elders and leaders, shepherds in a church, must be spirit-led and not people-driven. As Paul already had written, Galatians 1.10, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We got a whole group of men here. Now, stay with me, because I'm really not slamming the leadership in Jerusalem. I'll prove that to you in just a second. But we have a whole group of men who are raising this issue of the concern of their constituents in Jerusalem. And how are we going to address this? Verse 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. We have a sensitive issue here, Paul, and we need your help with it. What's the problem? Again, Paul, throughout Europe and Asia, has now been preaching salvation by faith apart from the law. So many of the Jewish believers, especially early on, they were believing that Christ was Messiah. They were accepting Yeshua, Hamashiach. Along with Jewish tradition, Jewish culture, Jewish custom, all of the extra-biblical rabbinical teachings... That was all important too. We're going to hang on to that and accept that Jesus is the fulfillment of that, but we have to keep all the customs, right? We still have to circumcise our children. We we still need to follow the feasts and the festivals, and we need to keep each day that the Lord prescribed, and we need to follow the law. Well, Paul is out there in Asia doing a totally different thing. Turn in your Bibles from here to the right a couple of books to the book of Galatians. More than a couple, four or five books. Over to Galatians chapter 5. Now, they have Paul dead to rights because, yes, he has been teaching that circumcision is now unnecessary. He has has been teaching that they don't have to follow Jewish custom, that truly salvation comes through faith in God's grace. Listen to what he had already written. It's a good chance that these letters had already made their way back to Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Les quoted this in his prayer just a few minutes ago. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Strong words. Very strong words. He continues and says, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. (laughs) You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. 
For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Skip down to verse 12. He says, I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. (laughs) Paul's a fiery dude. And unfortunately, this wasn't just something that that he said in a sermon. No, this was something he pinned and sent out to all the churches in Galatia. You don't think copies of this were being brought back to the mother church in Jerusalem? They're reading, what? I would that you would mutilate yourselves? What was he teaching out there? What's going on, Paul? He'd also fired off the Spirit-inspired, and let me just make note of that, Galatians is an inspired letter. These are not the words of Paul, these are the words of the Spirit of God. But go back to the book of Romans, another letter Paul had already written, had sent off to the church in Rome, a doctrine-laden, Spirit-inspired letter. One that I I look forward to getting to with you all, Lord willing. Romans chapter 3 And listen to what Paul says there. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And remember the Jewish audience and the Jewish mindset early on in the church. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he says, look, the whole law and the prophets told us this day would come. Focused on the righteousness of God as received through faith. As he's going to talk about in Romans chapter 4, that's how Abraham got his righteousness. It wasn't by keeping the law. There was no law. Law didn't come until Moses. So when Abraham was on the scene, God credited him with righteousness based on his faith. And Paul says that's now the deal. He says even the righteousness of God through faith, verse 22, in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Not justified by keeping the law. Justified by Christ. Look down in verse 28, and then Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul's reputation, if not his letters, are preceding him. As he comes into Jerusalem, his name is now somewhat infamous in this most Jewish segment of the early church. So they came up with a solution to kind of assuage the Jewish believers. Here's what the elders say. Verse 23, back in Acts 21. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. It's probably a Nazarite vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. If you do this, it'll help. Take these guys, pay for their haircuts, pay for their sacrifice of the temple, go through the purification rite with them, yourself being purified. It, it was mikvah, the, the baptismal bath. Go through all that with your Jewish brothers here and show the church, look, you're with us. 
And they feel like, well, this will calm things down. So I asked the question, did the Jerusalem elders lack grace? Quite the contrary, they're showing great grace. Because they're showing a great sensitivity to where the people were. To not shoving down their throats what Paul was teaching to the Gentiles. It was easy for the Gentiles. You know, they're going out to the Gentiles, they're teaching this glorious thing about grace and forgiveness and redemption, and for a Gentile who didn't know the law, wow, really? I just believe in Jesus, and I can be saved? And they're embracing it, and they're thrilled about it. But all the Jewish believers, well, man, they've got a couple thousand years of history behind them that are slowing them up. They have to work through this. They're in the process. I think that the elders here are trying to keep the peace. Verse 25 tells us, they go on and say, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote... Remember back in Acts 15, they wrote that letter, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrifice to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Paul had taken that letter from them all over Asia. And the brothers throughout Asia were receiving it gladly, were thrilled. The Gentiles were like, all right, we're accepted. We're part of the team now, man. We're all Christians together. The reality was, however, that the divide between Jew and Gentile was deep and wide. Again, the Gentiles, who knew nothing of Jewish culture and the law, they could receive grace easily. Many of the early Jewish believers were still bound to their traditions. They were still, all these things written around and grown up around Scripture, and it's kind of like what we see today between churched and unchurched people. You see, the unchurched person who doesn't have a clue walks in, and finds freedom and grace and is saying hallelujah and starts doing stuff that's just not appropriate. According to us long-time church folk. <laughs> and it's a little bit of both. The unchurched person needs to learn of the truth and understand righteousness and sanctification and all of that. But the churched person needs to get off his high horse and let go of some of his traditions. Amen. And we both do that under the grace of our Lord Jesus. Because the reality is we are not all in the same place. Thankfully, we have the Word of God to draw us together and to unify us. We have the Spirit to do the same thing. But we're not always in the same place. And the elders in Jerusalem have the challenge of navigating their primarily Jewish constituency. They're not a Gentile church in Asia. They're the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And they have to deal with their people. And they have to help their people grow in the faith and the knowledge of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And I've learned over the years that the best way to do that is not through contention, but through peace. Paul would later write, actually Paul previously wrote, Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans 14, 1, he said, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. You know, it's funny about that, Romans 14, 1, the one who's weak in faith, it's always the other guy. I'm not the one who's weak in faith. You know, he is, she is, and I'll accept him, her, where they are. I may be the one who's weak in faith. But we are to accept one another in peace and not pass judgment on those opinions. Romans 14, 19. 
Paul said, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So here's the thing. Peace allows people to grow in grace. Contention and controversy only harden the soil of the heart. There are plenty of times where we could just bash on people. We can make decisions that are hard for people. And even drive people out of the fellowship because this is the way to do it. And I'll tell you, there are some hard and fast truths that we will not compromise. But there's also a whole lot of area for the body to grow up together. I do not expect my seven-year-old son David to understand Scripture the way I do. I expect him to understand it where he is. And I'm bringing him along so that he can understand it more than I do now. And that's the way it is in the church. And so I'm with the the elders here in Jerusalem. I think they're wise. They're concerned about their flock. They're looking out for their flock and they're saying, Paul, look, you can do this and it will make all the difference in the world. Verse 26, Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And you might say, Paul, you've been fighting against this kind of legalism. Why'd you do it? Because to the Jews I became as a Jew. So that I may win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20-22. through 22. He says, I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. That's not appeasement, and it's not compromising doctrinal truth. It's going the extra step so that people can grow in grace. It's making room for the growth of others. And Paul did that. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid! This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. That is the temple. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. For they have previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul. And they suppose that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, understand, this is not the Jewish church that is angry with Paul right now. These are the Jews in Jerusalem who are not followers of Jesus. These are just your typical Jewish people who have come up to temple and they see Paul and his reputation had preceded him to the non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem as well. And they throw back their heads and they howl and they say, gather, we got to get this guy. And they are absolutely opposed to Paul because they're opposed to Yeshua, their own rejected Messiah. Paul was a threat to their very way of life. Verse 30. And then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to meet them. And when they saw the commander, when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So this whole time they've been beaten on Paul. Verse 33, Then the commander came up and took hold of him, 
and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. Verse 34. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. The barracks? The fortress of Antonia. That sounds familiar. It's the same place they brought Jesus. And now they're taking Paul into those barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, Away with him! Away with him! And you can almost hear in the distance, Crucify him! Crucify him! Same thing's happening to Paul as happened to Jesus. Imagine the mayhem People are in a frenzy. The, the soldiers are literally, Luke tells us, carrying Paul up the stairs to the barracks into the fortress of Antonia because if they didn't carry him, the people would tear him apart. They are out of control. And the scene is not unlike the one 27 years before. When Jesus was dragged up those same stairs, dragged into that same place, those barracks. And Paul is looking more and more like Jesus every day. Remember what I said on Sunday, the closer you get to Jesus, the more your life will parallel His. The closer you desire to be, and we should, and I I want to be so close to Christ, as Paul prayed, to know the fellowship of His sufferings even. Being conformed to His death. I want to be as close to Jesus as possible. But note, when you say that, when you desire that, you may find your life starting to look like His. And Paul's is like cookie cutter, man. As he's being taken the same direction. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 8.29, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to be more and more like Jesus. To look like Jesus. To act like Jesus. To think like Jesus. Our opinions should be like the opinions of Christ. Our attitudes like Christ. Our vision like Christ. Our hearing like Jesus. Conform to the image of His Son. So here's Paul in the middle of mayhem again. Chuck Smith said that there were two outcomes to all of Paul's preaching. There was either revival or there were riots. It was one or the other. Athens is the only place on all of his journeys where we really don't see a whole lot of reaction, and that's because they were so stoned on philosophy. But everywhere else, there was major reaction, one way or the other. Philippi, Thessalonica, Ephesus, all of those places had major riots at the preaching of Paul, and now here in Jerusalem. And I wonder how Paul must feel. I mean, wouldn't that get discouraging after a while? I think it would be fun once or twice to cause a riot. And I'm all for that. But after a while, to know that no one's listening. People are just reacting in anger and bitterness and vitriol. It had to be heartbreaking for Paul, especially because now he's in... Yerushalayim. He's in the place of his upbringing. Oh, he was born in Tarsus, but he was brought up in Jerusalem. These are his people. 
This is his hope, his chance to talk to his own and they're rioting against him. And I would think it would be discouraging except that when you're bound and determined for, for heaven there's a joy that is deeper than any sorrow. Paul had that. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says, Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I think Paul had that strength. Verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought up into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, that is the commander, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian, whom some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? The word assassins there is Sikari. The Sikari? Terrorists, basically. Josephus confirms that in A.D. 54, six years prior to this event, an Egyptian terrorist hatched a plot to destroy the Temple Mount. He led a a crew of of fighters. Josephus says 30,000. Luke says 4,000. I'm going to go with Luke on this one. And this this terror leader led these 4,000 Sakari up onto the Mount of Olives. And looking across to the Temple Mount, he proclaimed by sheer force of will, he could cause the Temple Mount to crumble before their very eyes. And while they stood there waiting for it to crumble, the Roman army came upon them. And they scattered like rabbits, and a few were picked off by the Romans, and the leader ran out and hid in the wilderness and was never heard from again. The commander thinks this guy, this Paul, is that leader. We've got our man. we got him now. So he's surprised when Paul turns to him and starts speaking Greek rather than Egyptian. You speak Greek? So you're not the guy. And Paul answers him, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. Hear my defense, Paul says, and he uses the word apologia. That's where we get our word apologetics. It's not making an apology. It's not saying, I'm so sorry you're mad at me. Apologia is a legal term in the Greek. It means literally to mount a defense. To give answer for why you believe what you believe. To give a reasoned argument. So Paul is not about to apologize here. He's giving reason as to why he believes what he believes, why he's proclaiming what he's proclaiming. Paul would later tell Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to make a defense, an apologia, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. So I ask you tonight, are you ready to make a defense right now? If we called you up onto the stage and said, make a defense for the gospel of Jesus Christ, could you do it? All right, stand up. Did I scare any of you? You're ready. Are you ready to make a defense? You might say, no. I don't know Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. 
I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't have the prophecies prepped. You know, I, I don't have the doctrines down. I don't have the verses verified. Who am I? What do you mean, make a defense? Gang, listen. Paul's defense here is not some theological treatise. It's not some doctrinal dissertation. Paul's defense is his own personal testimony. And through the rest of chapter 22, as as we read, Paul just gives his testimony. He doesn't go to the Hebrew Scriptures and start dredging up prophecies. He could. He has in the past. He doesn't go to philosophy and start utilizing that. He's done that in the past as well. Paul is one of the most articulate, intelligent men ever to walk the face of the earth. This guy was absolutely brilliant. Brilliantly educated. And the defense that he mounts, and get this, brothers and sisters, is his testimony. Can you share your testimony? You know what your testimony is? It's why you're here tonight. Why do you love Jesus? Why do you follow Him? Why does He matter to you? That is the most powerful thing that you have to offer. More powerful than all of of the PhDs out there combined. You don't have to have it all down. All you need to know is why you follow Jesus. Why do you love Jesus? What has Jesus done in your life? And this is Paul's big moment, if not his last. It's the one he's longed for since the Damascus Road to preach the Gospel to the audience of Israel there in Jerusalem. And his defense is his personal story. Verse 2. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. Now this is remarkable, gang. I think God's doing something here. Because to quell an out-of-control screaming mob is not an easy thing to do. And yet Paul starts to speak Hebrew. And they go, wait, wait, what's he saying? He's speaking our language now. By the way, the word Hebrew, it says the Hebrew dialect, and that's probably a good translation because the Hebrew dialect is the common Aramaic. Anywhere you see this throughout the New Testament, where Hebrew is listed or written in English, it's probably Aramaic, except for two places. There are only two places we know absolutely for certain that the words used are Hebrew words originally in the text. Want to know what they are? Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, when these locust-like demons are coming up out of the pit and we're told they have as king over them the angel of the abyss and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, Apollyon. That's Hebrew. That's not Aramaic, that's Hebrew. The other place is Revelation chapter 16. Verse 16, dealing with frog-like demons. Locust-like demons, frog-like demons, bottom line is you don't want to run into a demon. And it says, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Charmageddon. And that's in Hebrew. And those are the only two actual Hebrew words in the entire New Testament. The rest are Aramaic. That's interesting. Why just those two places? If I were to venture a guess, I would say it's because the tribulation, which is what's being dealt with with both of those, the tribulation and ultimately Armageddon, gang, they are Israel's wake-up call. They have to do with the Hebrew. 
And they're the wake-up call to the Jewish person who has yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they see and they recognize. And God, using Old Testament methods, comes rushing in. And while He's pouring out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, He turns around and He starts calling to the heart of Israel. And as Paul writes in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. All Israel? Well, yes, but there's a caveat. And I don't have time to deal with it tonight, so ask me later. But these are both specifically Hebrew words. So he starts speaking to them in the common dialect, the Aramaic, which all of the Jewish people spoke. I'm a Jew, verse 3, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Educated under Gamaliel. Oh, you can almost hear that name being repeated. Oh, Gamaliel. Oh, this guy's, he's been well trained. Strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today, Paul says. I persecuted this way, Christianity, to the death, binding and putting both men and women in prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. I'm one of you, Paul says. We're mano y mano. I get you. Let me explain to you how you can get and understand me. I'm from the same place. It's interesting he mentions Gamaliel in the writings of Gamaliel. There's actually a mention about a student who, quote, manifested impudence in matters of learning. A student who manifested impudence in matters of learning. In other words, a a pupil who had a voracious appetite for learning. He couldn't get enough books and knowledge. He just wanted more and more and more. Gamaliel references him, and that pupil has been identified historically as none other than Paul. That he was a ravenous student. He wanted it all. And Gamaliel even referred to him. Well, he's now saying, look, we understand each other, right? I get where you are coming from regarding this Christian thing. Let me explain. And then in verse 6 he goes on. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven around me. A bright light. A great light. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, especially this time of year, is Matthew 4.13, which says, Leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. The great light. That word, that phrase, great light there in Matthew 4 is megas phos. Megas phos. Great light. A lasting and impressive, a massive light. And by the way, when Jesus came, He was just that. He was the great light because in His 33 years of life, He manifested all of the Hebrew prophecies of the first coming of Messiah. A great light. 
All you have, you want to flip the light on for someone who's uncertain about faith? Show them the prophecies of Jesus' first coming. Show them the prophecy in the Hebrew Scripture and the fulfillment in the New Testament. It is radical. It's marvelous. Over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And it's impossible for, for someone to fulfill one or two or three prophecies about their life. is off the charts. And Jesus fulfilled over 300 like a great shining light across 33 years. Paul says, I saw a light. He says in verse 6, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. Well, this is a different kind of light. This is not the big, great light. This is more like a flash of lightning. A zoom, quick and blinding. In verse 7, in a moment, he said, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Yeshua Hanasarin, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me, Paul says, saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up, go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand, by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near to me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from His mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on His name. Now back when we studied this same witness, this testimony of Paul, back in Acts chapter 9, Luke describes the story. Here, for the first time, Luke quotes Paul telling the story. And so there are a couple of little differences. Now, they're not a big deal. They're really more an expansion. You know, Paul now is expanding upon the first telling of the story. He doesn't inflate it. It's not like a fish story. But he gives more information that we didn't get the first time around. I want you to note just two differences tonight in the additional notes that Paul gives. First of all, Paul adds that Jesus called himself the Nazarene. In Acts chapter 9, it's just, I am Jesus whom you are persecuted, persecuting. And here, Paul says, I heard him speak to me and he said, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Why is that important? Because Paul is now clarifying for the people in Jerusalem what Jesus he's talking about. There are all kinds of Jesuses running around there. Yeshua. The name was as common as Joshua, as the name John would be, perhaps in in, in our culture. Just a a common name among Jewish people. Jesus was just common. There was nothing about Him that, that Isaiah says that should attract us to Him. Nothing unique, nothing different. Until He started speaking. Until He started loving. Until He started showing who God was in the flesh. So he was just Jesus. 
And Paul's clarifying. They all knew in Jerusalem. Remember, this is just 27 years later. They knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. They knew the story. Many of the people sitting there looking at Paul that day were probably in the same crowd 27 years earlier, a little bit younger, but looking up at Jesus having hoped that he was the Messiah and watching him be crucified. And then hearing the stories that he resurrected from the dead. Hearing the stories that over 500 people saw him with their own eyes after he had been crucified. Walking around, teaching, talking. They heard all about Jesus of Nazareth. And now Paul clarifies that's exactly who it is and that's who he claimed to be himself. So that's different. Now all of a sudden Paul adds the Nazarene. And I believe Jesus said that originally anyway. But the second one's a little more problematic. Because he doesn't add something, he subtracts something. Paul subtracts from the hearing of the men who are with him. Watch this. Look at verse 9 of chapter 22. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. That phrase, understand the voice, is akuophone. They didn't akuo, hear, phone, the sound. They didn't hear the sound, he says in his personal testimony. Problem. Back in Acts chapter 9, verse 7, we're told the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Akuophone. It's the same exact phrase used in both places. In Acts chapter 9, they heard the voice. They heard the sound. In Acts chapter 22, they didn't hear the sound, Paul says. Uh Uh-oh, the critics have pounced on this one. They love to find those contradictions in Scripture. You know, those inconsistencies. Because the language is exactly the same. Akuo, phone. Akuo, where we get acoustic. Phone, where we get phonics. I knew someone who was hooked on phonics once. It's unfortunate. So did they hear the sound or not? Acts chapter 9, they heard the sound. Acts chapter 22, they didn't hear the sound. Is it a conflict in Scripture? Come back Sunday, and we are going to talk about that. Speaking of Sunday study, did you catch what Paul said to Ananias in verse 14? He says that he was appointed, note this, to three things. To know His will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from His mouth. Gang, these are what I would call the calling keys of Paul. Keys to his calling. This is what he was, what he was called to. And we're going to talk about that on Sunday as well. But I want you to note simply tonight that he prayed a similar prayer to this. Listen to those again. He who had been appointed to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. And Paul prayed this for the church at Ephesus. And by extension, I believe us. I do not cease giving thanks for you, Ephesians 1.16, while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Understand this, in Paul's calling, the most beautiful thing about knowing what your calling is, is passing it along to others. It's taking what God has given to you and turning around and giving that same thing to someone else. Paul knew what it was like to receive revelation. And so he turns around and for the church at Ephesus he prays revelation. He knew what it was like to have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so he prayed that the church at Ephesus would have the knowledge of Jesus. He knew what it was like to see Jesus. And Paul throughout his letter says, I want you to see Him. To see the righteous one. Well... Paul's personal testimony continues with something else that we did not know before this, verse 17. And it happened. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw Him, who? Jesus. I saw Him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord... They themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now stop there just for a second. Things are about to erupt. But before they do, look at this. Paul is arguing with the Lord. Paul is in the temple. He comes into what he describes as a trance. He's he's having a vision. He sees Jesus. And Jesus says, get out of Jerusalem. Go. And Paul goes, Lord. They get me. These are my people. They know where I'm coming from. These are my homies. They speak my language. I speak theirs. I am the perfect person to bring the gospel to the Jews. I mean, don't you see that, Lord? My entire life has been training to this perfect purpose. I'm the best guy for the job. He's arguing with Jesus. And Jesus is just trying to get him out of the city to save his neck. You want me to go to the Gentiles, Lord? Hey... My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Paul argues with the Lord over his calling, which I believe originally came from the Lord and not from Paul. I was thinking, how many times have we seen the same scenario played out? Abraham and Sarah. Start laughing when God says you're going to have a son and through your seed all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. They start cracking up. Until Isaac was born, they named him Little Laughing Boy. That's what Isaac means. Little Laughing Boy. Genesis 21 verse 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. They laughed the laughter of incredulity at first, and now they laugh the laughter of joy when God does exactly what He says He's going to do. But they didn't think He would at first. 
fact, I love it. Sarah's inside the tent when God tells Abraham, you're going to have a son. God hears her laugh. And he says, why are you laughing? She goes, I wasn't laughing. And he goes, yeah, you were. (laughs) What, What about Zacharias? Who's in the temple when the angel appears to him and says, you're going to, you and your wife Elizabeth are going to have a son. And he doubts the angel. He doubts the revelation that he and old Liz are going to bear a child. (laughs) Until John the Baptist was born. You may recall in that story that Zacharias went mute until John the Baptist was born. Angel wasn't going to have John, wasn't going to have Zacharias saying anything that was going to mess this up. And then Paul. Paul in a trance in the temple does the same thing. He argues with the Lord over what he is best suited to do until Gentiles all over the world are being born again. Isaac was a miraculous birth. John the Baptist, a miraculous birth. The parents argued with God. And now Paul, kind of a parent you could say, to the Gentiles argues with God over the miraculous birth of the Gentile nations coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You know what? Father always knows best. Always. Not usually. Not most of the time. Not remarkably often. Father always knows best. Even when the world is diametrically opposed... For when Paul presents his side of the argument, he now has laid out to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And back when he had that trance, lo, those many years prior, he argued with the Lord, give me a chance to speak to them, I'll show you. And Jesus says, get out of the city, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And Paul obediently goes. But here he is back. Here now he has a chance to prove to the Lord, you were wrong in the first place, I was right, they'll listen to me. He shares his story, and what do they do? They listen to him up to this statement, verse 22, and then they raise their voices and say, oh, and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks. They explode. And it's interesting because up to that point, they were listening. Think about all that Paul had already said. They're listening to him in silence as he gives testimony of the vision of Yeshua HaNazarene. No one interrupted him. No one shouted away, away with this man at that point. They listened as he described his calling given by that devout, well-spoken of Jew named Ananias. Paul doesn't mention he was a Christian in the church there in Damascus. He says a well-spoken of Jew. They all listened. They're paying attention. But when Paul implied that God Almighty wanted the gospel of His Messiah to go to the Gentiles. Eruption. They lost it. And what's remarkable is it's the Jewish scriptures that most clearly declare God's love for all people throughout the Hebrew scriptures. God's love for the world, His warnings to nations of the world because He cares about them too. 
Isaiah 49 verse 6 regarding Messiah. God said, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 52 verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations so that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. But when the Jewish people in Jerusalem hear that Paul was sent by God to the Gentiles, that's it. That is the straw that breaks the camel's back. That's the thing that pushes them over the edge. And we need to take a lesson here because when a people become so inwardly focused and self-protective, they end up caving in on themselves. And churches do it. Become so inward, doing everything for us, about us, focused on us, while the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Because we just can't allow that to be here. We just can't accept that. Well, what are you saying, Rick? That we should just be tolerant? No. Not of all things. The standard is God's Word. And God's Word had the Jewish people in Jerusalem, at least in that crowd, had they been adhering to God's Word, would have recognized that the Gospel was for all people. That Messiah was going to come to Israel, through Israel, but go out to all the ends of the earth. They should have known that by the Word of God. And for us here today, it is God's Word upon which we stand. And His Word declares, go. His Word declares, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That He's died for everyone if people would just come to faith in Jesus. But Israel had gone beyond God's Word. Israel had gotten so inwardly focused. Even the Roman commander here does not understand why the Jews hate the Gentiles so much. He doesn't understand what this reasonable, intelligent Jew had done to raise such a volcanic rage. Look at verse 24. He says, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. Well, that's nice. (laughs) Let's get to the bottom of this. Here's what we'll do. We'll beat the living tar out of him, and then maybe he'll talk. And you know what? That's exactly what they did so often. Not here, we'll see. But that's what the Romans did. If you can't get information out of someone, you apply the scourge. Cat of nine tails. You know what it is. Those leather strips with chunks of bone and glass and metal embedded in them so you slash it across the back and drag it across, tearing off the flesh. It was brutal. Nobody wanted to receive the scourge. But if you happen to be a Roman centurion or commander and you wanted to get the information... Listen, scourging was the ultimate enhanced interrogation technique. We hear all kinds of whining and complaining about waterboarding. I say bring back the scourge. No, I'm kidding. But Rome applied it liberally. 
and especially on the backs of Jews. These people are furious with this guy. He's not giving me any information. He's obviously not the Egyptian I thought he was. So let's start tearing into his back and let's see if he will talk. Remember 27 years earlier, Jesus, he was scourged, wasn't he? John 19 verse 1 says, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. And Pilate came out again, listen, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Do you realize what Pilate's saying? Hey, if he's not going to express any guilt after being scourged, he's got to be innocent. That was the mentality. If there's guilt to be found, just start tearing up someone's back and they will confess. And Jesus went through the entire process of scourging and never spoke a word. So Pilate looked at Jesus and said, He must be innocent. He he didn't try to defend himself. He didn't confess anything. If they confess no guilt under the scourge, they're innocent. By the way, most people never survived scourging. The fact that Jesus did, I believe, was a miracle. I believe God performed a miracle that day in the scourging of Jesus that allowed Him to live through it. Verse 25. But when they stretched out Paul with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? I told you, this guy is brilliant. Verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. See, it was not only completely unlawful to bind an untried Roman citizen, and he had already been put in chains, so that was a violation of Roman law, but it was absolutely, unequivocally unlawful to use the flagellum on a Roman citizen who had not been tried and found guilty. The act was punishable by death. So the centurion is there tying up Paul, getting ready to whip him. He's already tied up. This guy's already in big trouble. And his commander, they both could hang for this. Uh, uh, can I talk to you, boss? This guy's a Roman. Did you know that? Paul is so cool. (laughs) So cool. He knows his rights. He understands the system. And he knew when it was to his advantage. Listen, Paul knew when it was to his advantage to receive the scourge and when it was to his advantage not to receive the scourge. What do you mean? Remember, Paul said, I had already received scourgings. He had been scourged several times. We know in Philippi, he wasn't. He claimed his citizenship. We know now here in Jerusalem, he's not. He claims his citizenship. But there were other times where he was scourged, where he did not claim his citizenship. He knew when it was to his advantage one way or the other to be scourged. And you might say, wait a minute. Why would, how could it ever be to Paul's advantage to be scourged? The answer is simple. When it advanced the gospel. 
If it advanced the gospel, Paul took the whipping. If it made no difference at all, no reason to be scourged, right? It's just a waste of good flesh. (laughs) But if it would put forward the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul took the beatings. 1 Corinthians 9.23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker in it. The beatings, the stonings, the scourgings were worth it if they forwarded the message of Christ. So Paul is a Roman citizen. He uses his passport for God's purposes whenever he would choose. By the way, I mentioned that Jesus was scourged. Miraculously, he survived. Why was Jesus scourged? Well, Jesus didn't have a Roman passport. Jesus was just a lowly Jew. He was a man of no reputation. He was no citizen of Rome. He emptied himself and made himself nothing. And so he was scourged. There was no way out of that. But the scourging of Jesus, gang, is at the very heart of the Gospel. Isaiah told us, Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. That's why He survived the scourging. That's why He went through the scourging in the first place. Well, verse 27, the commander came and said to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. (laughs) And the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. I had to pay for it. And Paul said, I was actually born a citizen. (laughs) Verse 29, therefore those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. And we'll pick up the story right there next week. Father, wow. What an amazing testimony that Paul had to share and what a telling response and Father I find incredible encouragement in this in fact in the last couple of chapters we've been going through thank you Lord for the determination of Paul because Father it it falls on us like great encouragement and it really does it stirs my soul It makes me want to stand a little straighter. It brings boldness into my spirit. But we recognize, Lord Jesus, it is not Paul. It is your spirit in the man. Because he said back in Acts 19 that he had purposed in the spirit. So Father, my prayer tonight as we leave this place is that we would be a people who are purposed in the spirit. A people who are bold a people who are fierce with the truth, devoted with the grace, loving with the message of Christ. And Father, fill us up to the fullest measure of Your Spirit that we might be used by You 
in ways far beyond ourselves to continue to proclaim the gospel to this lost world. God, we cry out to you, make us bold after the manner of people like Paul. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, one more thing. We were talking during prayer tonight a little bit about boldness. And Spencer had had shared how he and John ran into, was it a woman in a convenience store? And uh, just began talking to her and all of a sudden just had the notion that they needed to pray for her and and talk to her about the gospel. And so quickly right there in that kind of weird little uncomfortable spot, they crossed the line and started talking about the good news. And it, it hit me while Spencer was sharing that. That when we ask God for boldness, we don't need boldness with a capital B. We don't need to pray for boldness to do the big things, you know. Boldness to stand up on the capital steps in Washington, D.C. and begin to declare the gospel to whoever will listen. We just need boldness to step beyond that moment of being slightly uncomfortable in the convenience store and go ahead and share the name of Jesus. Or slightly uncomfortable with someone, you know, that we're going to be around the holiday season. A family member who you know just gets ticked off every time you start going Jesus on them. (laughs) Let me encourage you, go Jesus on them. Because we're talking about eternal salvation. And our tiny little boldness with, with small b may be all it takes. And you might not even see the results of this. Spence and John didn't see the results of this lady. They don't know what the outcome ultimately is going to be, but their little act of sharing with her may be the one step closer she needed to get to actually hear the next person who comes along and mentions Jesus to her. You don't know. You may feel foolish. You may, may feel silly. You may feel like, ah, you know, I know I'm offending you here, but, but <laughs> be bold. Just be Bold with a little b. And I think we'll see all kinds of things happening if we'll just step out.